1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work, and you can find out more by visiting the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have great guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current world events. Jonathan Butcher will be joining us. He's the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be talking about school choice in the age of critical race theory. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, "Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, will be with us as well. It is November the first. Can you believe it? Already the November the first, and on this day in fifteen twelve, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome, one of Italian artists Michelangelo's finest works, was exhibited to the public for the first time. Michelangelo, the greatest of Italian Renaissance artists, was born in a small village of Caprice in fourteen seventy five. The son of a government administrator, he grew up in Florence, a center of the early Renaissance movement, and became an artist's apprentice at the age of thirteen. Demonstrating obvious talent, he was taken under the wing of Lorenzo de Medici, the ruler of the Florentine Republic and a great patron of the arts. After demonstrating his mastery of sculpture in such works as Pieta and David, he was uh, called to Rome in 1508 to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, the chief consecrated space in the Vatican. Michelangelo's epic ceiling frescoes, which took several years to complete, are among the most memorable works. Central in a complex system of decoration featuring numerous f- figures as uh, nine panels devoted to biblical world history. The most famous of these, of course, is the creation of Adam, a painting in which the arms of God and Adam are stretched toward each other. In 1512, the Michelangelo com- uh, completed the work. After 15 years as an architect in Florence, Michelangelo returned to Rome in 1534, where he work- would work and live for the rest of his life. <clears throat> That year he saw his painting of The Last Judgment on the wall above the altar in the Sistine Chapel for Pope Paul III. The massive painting depicts Christ's damnation of sinners and the blessing of the virtuous as it is regarded as a masterpiece of early mannerism. Michelangelo worked until his death in 1564 at the age of 88. In addition to his major artistic works, he produced numerous other sculptures, frescoes, architectural designs, and drawings, many of which are unfinished. and some of which are lost. In his lifetime, he was celebrated as Europe's greatest living artist and today is held up as one of the greatest artists of all time, exalted in the visual arts as William Shakespeare in literature or Ludwig van Beethoven in music. The great Michelangelo. Amazing, amazing mind in the 1500s. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis issued a proclamation announcing that the special session to provide protections for Floridians, who have lost their jobs, who are about having their employment threatened due to vaccine mandates, will begin on November the 15th and go no later than November the 19th. You're right to earn a living and you should not be contingent upon COVID shots, said Governor Ron DeSantis. We have somehow gone from 15 days to slow the spread, remember that, (laughs) back 18, 20 months ago, to three jabs to keep your job In Florida, we believe that the decision whether or not to get a COVID shot is a choice based on individual circumstances who are litigating against the Biden administration and will be passing legislation in the special session to protect Florida jobs and protect parents' rights when it comes to masking and quarantines. The health, education, and well-being of our children are primarily the responsibility of parents. As long as I'm governor, parents in Florida will play the strong role in determining what their kids are learning, and how they will be treated in school. Last week, Governor Ron DeSantis called for a special session of the Florida Legislature at a press conference where he was joined by first responders, healthcare workers, airline employees, and Floridians from various other industries who have faced or are facing consequences such as a result of vaccine mandates. Yesterday, Governor DeSantis and Attorney General Ashley Moody announced a lawsuit against the Biden administration's unconstitutional vaccine mandates, making Florida the first state to bring a comprehensive legal action against the federal contractor vaccine mandate. Governor DeSantis is calling on the legislation to consider uh, legislation that will protect current and prospective employees against unfair discrimination based on COVID-19, ensure that educational institutions and government entities are prohibited from unfairly discriminating against current and prospective employees and students, Ensure that employees improperly denied employment on the basis of COVID-19 vaccine status can be eligible for re-employment benefits and, if needed, ensure that employees insured by the COVID-19 vaccination t- taken pursuant to the company policy are covered by workers' compensation and appropriate sufficient amount of funds to investigate all the above. Uh, limit mandates for school uh, districts on students or employees regarding COVID-19 and related mitigation measures and provide adequate enforcement mechanisms so that, uh, to follow up on Florida law. Just really salute the governor again for making common sense decisions with regard to our public health as well as our in- economy. It takes a balance. You can't destroy without one without destroying the other. The true scale of our inflation problem became a bit clearer on Friday. The Department of Labor released its Employee Cost Index, a broad measure of wages and benefits. It showed that compensation rose at the fastest pace in decades in the third quarter this year. Wages and salaries increased 1.3% in the three-month period and were up 4.6% compared with a year ago. The trouble is that prices are going up even more. Compared with a year ago, the consumer price index is 5.4% higher. An alternative measure that looks only at prices paid by wage earners and clerical workers, sometimes called the blue-collar inflation gauge, was up by 5.9%. So, despite record-breaking wage gains, workers are earning less than they were a year ago after adjusting for inflation. No surprise, then, the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index slumped again in October. The survey's long-running chief economist, Richard Curtin, warned in his commentary Friday that consumers now have decided they will enter an inflationary era. Uh, That will make them more willing to pay and encourage businesses to keep raising prices. This risks setting off an inflationary spiral. Curtin pointed out that the last time this happened, it took Paul Volcker's massive monetary tightening to break it. The October survey also showed that the index tracking Whether now is a bad time to buy a car rose to a score of 69, the bad time to buy a household durable index rose to 54, close to the record of high of 58. Of course, this might not only be due to inflation, cars and appliances are scarce in many areas because of broken supply chains, not exactly a great lead into the holiday season. No, it's not. So wages are going up? Well, that's good. But inflation, unfortunately, is stealing. Uh, your increase in wages. President Joe Biden complained that Russia and Saudi Arabia are not producing enough oil to alleviate high prices in the United States despite his administration's efforts to dem- uh, to reduce domestic production. I do think the idea that Russia and Saudi Arabia and other major producers are not going to pump more oil so people can have gasoline to get to and from work, for example, is not right, Biden said during a press conference after the G20 summit in Europe. On Saturday, the president urged energy producing countries at the summit to boost oil production to pressure OPEC plus nations to increase supply and reduce gas prices around the world. The president acknowledged to reporters that it appeared ironic that he was traveling to Glasgow, Scotland for a climate change summit with world leaders, even while asking for oil producing nations to produce more. But he argued that the economy was still powered by oil. The idea that we're going to be able to move to renewable energy overnight and from this moment on not use oil, not use gas, not use hydrogen is just not rational, he said. I tell you what's not rational is cutting off the oil supply here in the United States. We were energy independent a year ago, and now he's screwed it up, cutting off the uh, pipeline and uh, making decisions that are increasing the price of energy just doesn't make sense. He said gas prices of over $3.35 a gallon in the United States were almost a tax on American workers who are traveling to and from jobs. But the president made no mention of his own efforts to hurt oil production here in the United States. And Again, we're talking about the Keystone XL pipeline and suspended new oil, gas, and uh, gas leases on federal lands. Biden also said at the press conference he would do more to stop government subsidies for oil production and spend more funding on subsidies for green energy. What a waste. We'll get to the point that it, by 2050 we'll have zero emissions, he said. <laughs> what a dope. Unbelievable. Let's go, Brandon. President Joe Biden wiped up his time at the G20 on Sunday trying to convince Americans and wider world that he got things under control on climate change. He got $900 billion planned for renewable energy, and Congress will... Vote next week on supply chains. He plans to make uh, the ports run better for workers. He plans uh, building an economy with pay raises. On diplomacy, world leaders can trust him. But he also acknowledged that what he can't yet fix, bringing Russia and China to the table with a broader international community to deal with the existential threat of climate change. That's our president. He really said all those things. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulab's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly staff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Bee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulaby's diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulubees.com and stop by Lulubees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulubees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulubees Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool, rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims. Is isolation. The Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. The Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain it and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, Director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect you Or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4541. That's
0: 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social, a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. also want to mention uh, the Golden Gate Senior Center. uh, New advertiser on the show. I'm just really pleased that they've selected the Bob Harden Show to get the word out about their fabulous services. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jonathan Butcher, who's the uh, fellow in education at the Heritage Foundation. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Always a pleasure, Bob.
1: Thank you, Mark. And uh, so let's—we've been talking about current global events. What is it now? For 15 years, <laughs> on Monday yep. morning, a long time. So uh, let's start off with uh, the uh, government, the uh, president's statements on Taiwan, and uh, with the impact of all that.
3: Right. So President Biden, about six days ago, I don't remember the exact date, uh, made a comment that the U.S. would come to the defense of Taiwan if attacked, which was not current. It's not current U.S. stated policy. That was sort of walked back afterwards, you know. Well, maybe he really was talking out of turn. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the Taiwanese basically said they, in an interview, with the president of Taiwan said she's confident the United States would come to the island's defense if attacked by, by China. And all of this is sort of, I think, a very well orchestrated uh, kabuki theater, so to speak, mm-hmm. where the key here is. Make the Chinese believe the United States will come to their defense. If the the Chinese think that that attacking Taiwan means World War III, they won't attack uh, Taiwan. If they think the United States won't come to its aid, then they will attack Taiwan, and then we'll be faced with the terrible option of whether to come to their defense or not come to their defense. So the best situation here is to keep the Chinese, make the Chinese keep believing. That the United States will come to its defense without signing any sort of formal treaty which would uh, really upset our relations with china so it's a it's a really delicate line that has to be be carefully carefully worked. I think there was really an attempt this week to sort of Walk on both sides of the line and balance it out, and I think it was, seems to be well done, in my opinion.
1: Hmm, we'll interesting. Yeah, do you see any parallels between what's happened here in Hong Kong and Taiwan and Hong Kong? I mean, uh, but- no. There
3: isn't a real <laughs> parallel in the sense that don't forget. I mean, yes, Obama. Oh, um, let me stand back a second. Of course, there's a parallel with China being an expansionist China and China, you know, not following its agreement, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, cracking down on the Hong Kong and eliminating the rights of the Hong Kong people, which they were supposedly guaranteed to some extent. But Taiwan, it's a whole other matter, obviously. Taiwan considers itself an independent nation. Um, it has an independent uh, army, navy, and everything else. It, under no circumstances, is willing to be part of China. Uh, China. And, of course, there's this little thing called the Straits of, Ti- Straits of Taiwan separating the mainland from from Taiwan it's not as easy as sending some troops into Hong Kong which is really just you know a a lo- a um, land border here you're talking about a sea landing so it would be very complicated and difficult for the Chinese mm. to do if they went that direction obviously so yeah there is clearly there uh, there is clearly parallels I and mean, the parallels a sense of what what does the Chinese want um but i think the pushback from Taiwan is very different than the pushback from from Hong Kong which really had no means of really pushing
1: back interesting so let's let's move then to the g20 uh, held uh, just recently just to end it and uh, just get your thoughts on the impact of that and what happened
3: well the most important thing I think in the g20 uh, mm-hmm. conference this time uh, was the decision vis-a-vis uh, minimum corporate tax worldwide so what's been happening in the world is that corporations have been shopping venues even if they don't they don't move their actual headquarters they find a way so for instance Apple, for many many years, uh, theoretically was doing all of its R and D in Ireland, so it would make all of its profit in Ireland. Even though it had you know had a couple thousand employees there, but it wasn't the center of of, uh, R and D. But they would they would they would mark all their profits in Ireland, pay the four or five percent, the very very low corporate tax in Ireland, and then charge the American entity for the R and D. That the American entity wouldn't be making very much money, and this is being done by many different corporations finding the place of the lowest denominator, not and not moving their headquarters and the, moving their co- company, but just moving their financial "quote unquote" headquarters. You know where the, where they have to pay taxes, and of course uh, that's really uh, you know very problematic for the world. Let's put it that way. So mm. um, this is a way of of, of limiting it and making it work, um, hopefully, and yeah. so that won't happen as much.
1: Seems to me uh, that, uh, uh, for example, the United States could make a decision to tax take Apple, you mentioned Apple, uh, based on the profits in the United States, or in other words, that they could modify their tax laws to circumvent the tax haven of some place like Ireland.
3: It's very difficult, let's put it that way. It, it may be possible, but it's very, very difficult, especially you're dealing with a company that, you know, has lots and lots of different, uh, you know, a lot of these companies have operations all over the place, mm-hmm. and so it's much easier um, to have an international agreement, obviously, that will allow you to um, to work this out, and I think this is, I mean, I think overall, overall this is a good thing, let's put it that way. So do you
1: think Ireland, um, does, has Ireland gone along, with, gone along with this?
3: Yes, Ireland's gone along with it.
1: Okay. Are there? Are there all? How many nations? I think it's what one hundred sixty or one hundred thirty nations that have done. One
3: hundred sixty in the world, but the G twenty are the twenty biggest corporate, biggest, biggest nations, the ones that can provide the most services. Will this? Um, will this solve everything? No, but it's a good start.
1: Interesting. I don't know. Just to me, it just strikes me as a, a, a problem. Uh, these things always good, begin with good intentions, but end up uh, being a drag on. Uh, in this case, it would be the world economy, I would believe, because taxes are taxes, and it tends to create costs somewhere along the ch- supply chain, and usually with a consumer.
3: I don't really agree. I mean, the corporation should be able to pay. 50, should be able to pay. Um, Fifteen percent taxes. I mean, the idea that they should avoid taxes completely. I mean, it's not the consumer who pays. It's, their, it's the fact that they maybe get a little less dividends. I mean, let's be honest. They don't raise that. They don't raise their. They don't raise the prices because they're paying some taxes. They may have to give a little less dividends and give less bonuses to their highest paid employees. I, I, I find that argument kind of specious.
1: Well, I, I would suggest that. Uh that, for example, when there's uh, increased taxes at the gas pump, uh, you know, the consumer ends up paying them. It's, it's, uh, well, the taxes at the gas
3: <laughs> pump is something else altogether. The taxes at the gas pump are taxes on,
1: consumer. on I, the yes.
3: product, so you're paying it directly. When yeah. corporate taxes are only paid on profits of the corporation.
1: Uh, a bad Don't analogy. That.
3: They're not paid that. They're not paid on sales of a corporation. They're paid on profits.
1: No, you're right. Uh, a bad analogy. Let me say, suggest it this way, then, uh, that... Uh, the accountants, the, the leaders of the companies, they make decisions on uh, not only targeting profitability, but they target uh, everything from dividends to uh, uh, payouts to uh, they, they will build, they will end up extending the price of products in order to make their balance sheet work the way they want it to work.
3: That balance sheet, yes, but once again, remember something. This is after the balance sheet.
1: Yeah, income statement, I should say.
3: Right, yeah, right, but this is after the income statement. They pay taxes. I mean, the the, the key is they want to show their income.
1: Yeah. Well, I just, uh, uh, you're convinced it's a good idea. I'm not so sure, so we'll see how this all... Okay,
3: we'll we'll leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah,
1: we'll see how this plays out. Let's move to Iran.
3: Okay, so Iran, the big question is, does Iran want to return to its... To nuclear talks or not? This past week, um, Iran was, let's say, attacked in the sense that all of its gas stations stopped working for 24 hours. Uh, not clear who did it, but we could say that it's most likely either the United States or Israel. The more likely targets, let's say, who who most likely did that huh. to sort of tell the Iranians that uh, you know you're very very vulnerable. Um, will that help push them to to reach an agreement or not? I, I don't know. Um, I mean, going to the I, reach an agreement. When I even met the reach agreement, they, they don't seem to be willing to go into the talks. They're now talking about returning to the talks at the end of November, uh, which, of course, is returning to the talks. I mean, any sort of agreement we reach. So the general sense is that the Iranians do not want an agreement, and then the question is, what's the rest of the world going to do? And that's really the question. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the disaster of pulling out of the JCPOA is going to uh, exist. There's no two ways about it because there's no follow-up. And we'll have to see what happens at this point. But, you know, can you get additional sanctions?
1: Well, we've lifted that. We've lifted uh, the sanctions. No, we haven't
3: lifted sanctions. No, we've lifted none of the sanctions. Absolutely not. We didn't lift any sanctions yet. We said we'd only lift the sanctions if they return to compliance. Hmm. So, but it's not true. Um, The sanctions are all still in place. Um, And where we stand, but the people who are not sanctioning them are the Chinese and the Russians and others.
1: Interesting. So, uh, ask this pointy question then. Uh, Iran's role in the world oil supply right now, what is it?
3: It's limited because they're under sanctions and they can't sell it. Hmm. So, that that's really where it is. They're selling some of it to China and to different places, but theoretically they're not in part of the market.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So we'll see how this all plays out, uh, but uh, right now it looks like they're dead set on ending up as a nuclear power. In fact, I think they already are. So, so I've seen, heard rumors that they already have uh, nuclear capabilities.
3: Well, they have the capability in a couple of weeks to have enough fissionable material. There's a difference between fissionable material and actually having the bylaw. Mm-hmm. So that's really you know, a question. Uh, we'll have to see.
1: All right, uh, Mark, let's move to uh, the climate conference and uh, what's transpired.
3: Okay, so the climate conference, the issue in the climate conference is, is the following. Almost the whole world agrees that something has to be done to keep the temperature on the earth from rising, um, where it's getting to the point where it's potentially dangerous. However, the interests of different countries are very, very different. So India at the moment is still building 30 new coal plants.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And the question is, how do you, you know, as much as the United States might cut its admissions, if India and China increase their admissions, it doesn't do us a lot of good, ultimately. And so this is a very delicate situation. Um, I'm of the belief, and I'm still in the minority, that at the time has come to find other means of mitigating, and I don't think we're going to be able to cut back the emissions any time within the time that's required if we want to, if we want to cease um, the increase in the, the heat of the world. And so, whether it's sulfur in the air or some other sort of uh, solutions, I think we should need to start thinking about those sort of solutions because I don't think we can do it in time. Even if you know, with all with all the best intentions, and leaving aside American politics and even you know all the other politics that are involved in all of this, I think it's just going to be very very difficult uh, considering where the world is at right now. And so. Um, We'll have to see what, what develops, but I think we're gonna be in that position. I think everyone agrees that still, you know, some people in some political circles still think it's not human cause, but the overwhelming majority of the world thinks it's human cause, and there's no question the Earth is getting warmer. And that's causing problems, and the sea levels are rising, and some nations are beginning to to disappear. So uh, we need to figure to figure this out and find ways of mitigating this if we can, uh, but it's very difficult among so many different nations with so many different interests. And, of course, the biggest problem with something like this is the fact that, you know, pain is now, hopefully, to solve a problem that will exist 20 or 30 years from now. And that's a very difficult thing for any politician anywhere in the world to do. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's also like building a, even building a transit project that takes 20 years. You know, it's really hard. I want to stop, you know, if I'm a politician, I want to start a project, and I want to be there to cut the ribbon and get all the glory.
1: So, yeah, the way you described the thing- problem, Mark. I, I mean, I just acknowledge the fact that we we do want to prevent the outcome that can ar- arise from uh, rising oceans or uh, the, the the problems that occur because of a changing climate. I, I I understand that. The whole notion of of blaming this on carbon dioxide to me is just so foolish. I mean, the globe has been around for 13 billion years. We've had more than single cell. Uh, life on the planet for the last two hundred thousand years, we've been through a couple of ice ages uh, where we've had a sheet of ice six feet miles high <laughs> over over our continent. So, to me, t- t- it's so uh, it's like the t- Tower of Babel in some ways. It's such a uh, foolish undertaking on the part of the of humanity to try and control what's happening on the globe.
3: Well, except for the fact that we have a big input in what's happening on the globe. Humanity does. I mean, humanity wasn't around; it, it had an impact. It's only since the Industrial Revolution have we been having an impact on our climate. Yeah, uh, and you know we can argue back and forth how much, but there's no question there's some impact.
1: Well, but and here's the thing: the the level of carbon dioxide in our in our air, uh, which is a tra- trace element, uh, was higher during the uh, period of the dinosaurs than it is right now. So
3: well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. All I go with is the overwhelming number of scientists who think. This is one of the problems, not the only problem, but this is one of the problems. Yeah. So. Well, I have to say, look, um, you know, it's our grandchildren that'll pay. We'll be gone, pretty much, unless I don't know you're in Florida. Florida might sort of wash away earlier. <laughs> we never know. But, yeah.
1: Oh my goodness, Mark! It's just uh, well, it's incredible. I think the way we get stirred open. Now, thinking about taking resources right now. Most people say, yeah, we ought to do something about getting. Uh, c- uh, climate change, but uh, when it comes to spending $11 a year or any amount of money, most people say, it's just not worth it right now. We don't want to do it. So it's, Well, that's
3: the question, right? I mean, but, but on the other hand, look, no one, no one questions the fact that it would be great if we all went over to electric cars. Let me all the other issues, right? We all agree that if we went to electric cars, let's put it this way, it's too bad Thomas Edison didn't win. He wanted to have an electric car. He had designed an electric car. Mm. So we could have all been driving electric cars for the last uh, 100 years. So there's no question that that it's more efficient to drive electric cars. Everything else, right? So yep. that would be nice if everyone had electric cars. If we all got
4: Teslas.
1: So it's more efficient. But the thing is, how do, you, how do you end up getting the electricity in the car? Well, doesn't it take carbon-based fuels to make that happen?
3: Well, it depends on how you use power plants. Don't forget, the power plants... Um, every power plant but coal plants is more efficient in terms of producing electricity than the output of cars. Cars, is a very, car, cars are a very inefficient producer of energy, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. There's fuel per, per calorie of energy, it's a very poor conversion and it uh, gives out a lot of excess um, gases during the process. A gas plant, a nuclear plant i'm much I'm a big fan of nuclear plants, mm-hmm. a solar field, all of those things are much much more efficient in converting uh, converting energy from whether it's from gas or from nuclear power or from the sun uh, much much more efficiently so at that point if it go if the grid is good and you plug your car into your house and it can go for four hundred miles you're pretty well set and when you go more than four hundred miles, if you stop at a station with a quick stop for fifteen minutes. You get, yourself a pair, you get yourself a pancakes while, while your car is charging, and
1: on you go. Oh, <laughs> uh, Mark. Well, in any event, uh, you're speaking like a person. And I'm lives, a Tesla salesman. Yeah, no, but you're sounding, you're sounding like somebody who lives in a city, so uh, there's some people who have to drive long distances in order to, 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 you know, to uh, refuel their car. Right, but
3: let's keep in mind, in the fact, there are some people, but the overwhelming majority of rides are shorter than 20 to 30 miles. Yeah, That's a statistic, right? Yeah. Yes, they, I, I didn't say every single person has to have an electric car, mm-hmm. but if all those people were doing the 20 or 30 mile drives every day twice, it would work perfect for them.
1: What's going to happen to all these batteries once they wear out?
3: Well, that's another, that, that is always a, a problem, but I believe there's ways of, of reusing them. But again, we need listen. We need a lot of technological solutions along the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully, they'll be good ones, and they won't be bringing met, the meta universe into it instead.
1: And what's what's going to happen to all these solar panels once they wear out? What's going to happen to these windmills when they wear out? Which is, I think, probably twenty years uh, that uh, they're going to have to be reprocessed and, and redone. It's uh, to me, it, and it doesn't pr- produce predictable strain, or alternative energy. you still very much dependent upon. Uh, carbon-based fuel and always will be, in my opinion. So uh, I just don't well, see. If you're this.
3: nuclear, you're not. That's another.
1: Story. That nuclear, you're right. And and why is it that uh, in the international community looks down on nuclear energy?
3: I think there is this obsession among some of the people in the environmental movement with the issue. with there's is two parts. One is the safety. You know, you had Fukumishu, You had, of course, um, the nuclear disaster in in Russia, which is now Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so you have those disasters, and those that can be catastrophic. Uh, the reality is, though, I mean, you look at when it's, when it's well run. Uh, look at the U.S. Navy; they've been having nuclear reactors and ships since 1954, I think it was, when the Nautilus was launched, and they've had not they've not had one accident. Right. Um, so, uh, but I'm um, go to the other side of it. Um, there's this uh, plant in in Oregon, Oregon-Washington border. Um, this naval base, where they are been slowly taking apart the old nuclear reactors, and that's always a difficulty: what to do with the spent nuclear fuel. That's right. And they haven't found a really good solution to spent nuclear fuel yet. So that's one of the negatives of nuclear fuel. Nuclear. So it's what to do with the spent nuclear fuel, and be the chances of a catastrophic disaster. I think the chances of a catastrophic disaster have been way uh, over, you know, over-imagined. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Overestimated. The fuel is, a, is an issue, but I still think that the, the biggest solu- the best solution to the electric grid in the United States is, and mu- anywhere in the world is many more nuclear plants. Mm. And um, I think your, uh, Bill Gates has been investing in a whole new design that's much more efficient and much safer than what was done 40 years ago because the current designs are really 40 or 50 years old.
1: I happen to think uh, I would love to see something developed in the area of cold fusion where each uh, home, for example, has its own uh, energy source and it's not dependent upon the grid. And uh, that, I think that would create some uh, more security for the United States as well. But that's that's uh, that kind of technology, I think, is, uh, is possible. Whether it's going to happen or not, I'm not sure. It's also interesting. Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you will check out the website. It's good for kids of all ages, including you and I. HistoryCentral.com. Mark, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: My pleasure, Bob. Have a great
1: week. You as well. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jonathan Butcher, Will Skillman Fellow in Education, that and more, right here in The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. To the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob
1: Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. And you can find out more by visiting the website, org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim T- McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now, we have with us Jonathan Butcher. He's the Will Skillman Senior Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Great to be with you.
1: Thank you so much, Jonathan. So uh, I want to check in with you about what's happening in education, public education, especially with regard to, I guess, uh, the, the center of the universe right now is Loudoun County in Virginia. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on what's happening. Well,
2: I think the big story is that school board associations,
1: so the interest groups
2: that represent school boards, have been working with the White House to send the message that they think parents are dangerous mm-hmm. and that they don't like what parents are doing when they come to school board meetings to say that uh, they're not happy with mask mandates or the teaching of critical race theory. And uh, parents aren't happy about this.
1: No, they're not. And uh, among other things, I mean, uh, how about the uh, gender spectrum? And <laughs> you can go down the list of things that are uh First of all, not factual, it, it, and uh, also supported by, I think, Marxism if, if more than anything else. So uh, why is, the, why is the, uh, the, the White House, why is this administration and the uh, uh, Department of Justice, why are they taking this position?
2: Well, it's consistent, I think, with the way that groups that are left of center have dealt with race, especially in the past 10 years um this issue of quote anti-racism which is a orwellian term that's really talking about discrimination right we're talking about judging people based on the color of their skin and then from the angle of government trying to coerce people to uh c- create equal outcomes for everybody mm-hmm. so those that are doing better would be taken down a notch those that aren't doing as well would be uh, given an artificial boost and it's it's just like you said, there's a more than a whiff of Marxism behind this effort to make, group, make everyone sort of uh, equal to each other.
1: You know, we have a firewall here in Florida. Our governor, Governor Ron DeSantis, is just doing us a fabulous job, I think, in terms of protecting us from some of this nonsense. And uh, one of the things he's done is he created a, a and this is the legislature also, but a parental bill of rights. And it really has a, goes a long way to spelling out very clearly who's responsible for the children, not only in terms of their education, but also in terms of their health care. But it seems to me that uh, there's, I don't think this administration would sign on on that thought. I think they're more leaning towards that. Look, the kids are ours <laughs> and uh, yes, the parents are involved, but uh, we're kind of the senior partner in this whole parental thing.
2: Well, and left-leaning lawmakers and interest groups have said as much recently. I mean, uh, look at what um, former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe said on uh, in a debate a couple of weeks ago. He said that uh, he doesn't think parents should be telling schools what to do. There was an op-ed in the Washington Post last week from some academics who said that Schools should be teaching students what they think is best, even if it goes against the wishes of parents. Mm. And then you've got the National School Boards Association, uh, like I was saying, uh, releasing this letter saying that the activities of parents at school board meetings these days, when they disagree with school board decisions, is equivalent to domestic terrorism. So uh, this is uh, not going to be sending parents uh, back, have their kids going back to assigned schools right now, which, by the way, public schools have been, I mean, just uh, hemorrhaging students over the past year.
1: I read that there's about uh, less than 3 million children enrolled in public schools this year compared to previous years. So that number's down, and we're seeing an increase in the amount of technology and the availability of other types of education or or creating education that's equally effective, perhaps more effective, based on the parents' wishes. I wonder if there's not a, a seismic moment that might be occurring here in public education.
2: I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think that the pandemic may have brought on some of this change in enrollment, especially across states like California, Wisconsin, and in large districts, Chicago, L.A. Um, However, telling parents that they are dangerous or that they somehow are not the have the final say over what happens to their children in education, I don't think that's going to drive parents back to assigned schools.
1: I don't either. I mean, I think this may have cost McAuliffe the election, quite frankly, because this is not washing well with uh, parents who are very concerned about the quality of education in, in Virginia.
2: Well, and most certainly, and parents have a lot to say, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of big decisions that are going on right now, both from, you know, masks and, and this question now of vaccines to the critical race theory question that's been coming up in recent years. And then you have uh, this year in 2018, uh, 2021, You had 18 states where lawmakers either created or expanded parent options in education, from private school scholarships to education savings accounts. There in Florida, you combined the McKay Scholarship for Children with Special Needs with the Gardner Scholarship for uh, the Education Savings Account Program, to name name just a few. Mm -hmm. And so when when you have state lawmakers responding to parents in this way, that should give parents a lot of hope, right? That should make them very, um, uh, very optimistic about their uh, their choices for the future.
1: Doesn't seem to be rattling the uh, the uh, teachers unions though, does it?
2: Well, I think the issue here is that, and this is where the Biden administration comes in. They have approved the spending of upwards of two hundred billion dollars uh, just over the past uh, couple of months, uh, all in total. And I think that this money, which is frankly, unprecedented in public education in such a short period of time, is uh, it's providing a, a parachute. I mean, it's providing some padding for special interest groups because the public schools can then hire more employees, right? They can use that to hire more staff who then potentially will become union members in the future. And so I think that this has given, you know, I mean, it's given unions exactly what they have always asked for, right? More spending has always been a talking point, regardless of how well students are performing
1: which, by the way, over the last uh, 40 years has not been well. I mean, we've actually seen a decrease in the performance of students in uh, public education versus uh, other countries around the world.
2: Well, sure, and, and even among student groups here in the U.S., right? I mean, you have students who are the most disadvantaged, right, from low-income homes in urban areas. They have uh, Their scores are um, uh, they're either stagnating or have gone down in the key areas of math and reading. And uh, this is despite, you know, steady increases uh, in public education spending up till COVID. And then it went from steady to exponential when it came to spending. And uh, this should, you know, this should make taxpayers now, um, you know, we should have been asking hard questions all along. Right. Uh, But the answer is going to come from states, right? The answer is going to come from state lawmakers allowing parents to choose how and where their children learn.
1: Absolutely right now we have uh, public schools are a uh, monopoly public monopoly unfortunately so that reduces the amount of competition we've got we've seen bureaucratic fat just uh, you see these uh, school boards just adding in more and more uh, bureaucracy into the school compared to the teachers uh, the greater percentage of the budget that's going towards uh, bureaucracy is is in growing and the amount going to teachers is going down so it's a very unfortunate situation
2: well, most certainly, and like we were talking about with these talking points around parents and uh, what their rights are when it comes to their child's learning, there are some school board members now who are saying, wait a minute, this is this has gone even further than uh, we feel is appropriate and, and they're right. And so there are groups that have withdrawn from the National School Boards Association in just the past few weeks. Right. You've got Pennsylvania, Louisiana, uh, to name just a few, New Hampshire last week, Missouri. Uh, so I think you know it's a credit to the school board members who are saying, "Wait a minute, this message to the White House saying that parents are dangerous doesn't represent
1: us." Oh, wow, nice to hear. Jonathan Butcher, again, will Skillman fellow at Education at the Heritage Foundation. heritage.org is the website. I encourage you to check it out heritage.org. Jonathan, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Follow the Leader and his sequel, Shake the Money Tree. That and more right here in The Bob Harden Show on The Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on The Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: School choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, Classical Academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergartens through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich,
0: back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob
1: Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative and you can find out more by visiting the website thefga.org. We have this Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of Terrific murder mysteries, really exciting reads. The first is uh, uh, "Follow the Leader" and its sequel, "Shake the Money Tree." Jim, thank you so much for joining us.
4: It's a pleasure, Bob. It's uh, hey, we're going to have our first frost here in Pennsylvania, my new home. I, you know, I moved from the Beltway to Pennsylvania uh, for retirement. Uh, and so, just so you got, can gloat down there in Naples, uh, Tuesday night we're supposed to have a frost.
1: Oh my good! Oops, I just spilled some ice cream on my flip-flops. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet it melted right away. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, speaking of which, moving from Virginia, we've got this big election coming up tomorrow, uh, McAuliffe versus Yunkin. And uh, right now the polls are saying Yonkin's uh, going to run away with it, which is unheard of, that a Republican would could win uh, Democrat politics. What are your thoughts?
4: Well, I don't think he'll run away with it. You know, I lived in uh, Virginia uh, for the last uh, 18 years. I lived in Alexandria, Virginia, which is, uh, I used to call it the Soviet Socialist Republic of Alexandria yeah. because it was so left-wing. Yeah. Um, and the uh, Fairfax County which is the most populated county in the state which which has about a million people and maybe uh, 650,000 voters had been predictably blue because bureaucrats live there sure. and and you know the democrats are very good to government workers they expand government and and they give them job security where republicans come in and say we're going to cut government and, and scare the hell out of them so uh it's a, it's tough to 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 turn counties like that. But having said that, uh, Loudoun County, which is just north of Fairfax, home of many uh, CIA agents, by the way, mm-hmm. it's one of the uh, uh, it's one of the wealthiest counties. I think it's the wealthiest county in the country, mm-hmm. uh, not including the CIA people who who, who don't make big salaries. Uh, and they've had that school controversy up there. Uh, you know, about the transgender boy who uh, sexually assaulted a girl in the bathroom and the school board tried to cover cover it up. I mean, uh, that could really change the situation in Virginia, number one. Uh, Number two, uh, Virginia, northern Virginia, is very uh, air transportation-centered, you know, has Dulles Airport and Reagan, and people are always going on trips And uh, there's been huge fiascos at the airlines. Gasoline prices are up. I mean, you know, just one catastrophe after the other. uh, And and Joe Biden seems to be the uh, orchestrator of all this. So, uh, you know, I predict that that the Norfolk area where the Navy is, which went blue uh, during the last election, uh, will go back to red Mm -hmm. and uh, Loudoun County should go red. I'm not sure about Fairfax, maybe pink, but it'll be a very, very close election. And if Yonkin wins, it'll be by a nose.
1: How about ele- election integrity in uh, Virginia? A lot of states have tried to shore up their uh, processes for uh, for the elections. I'm not sure that Fairf- or that uh, Loudoun County or or Virginia has done that. The Commonwealth has done that, but they, as I understand it. They've Worked hard to keep the legislature to make sure that mail-in voting and that type of thing is uh, is prevalent there in Virginia.
4: Yeah, the, you know the, the elections there are good. Uh, you have to understand the steel election, even at the uh, county level, uh, would take tremendous orchestration of uh, multiple parties. <laughs> you know, so mm. so I, I, you know, I, I I used to joke that the you know the only county that has really mastered that are a couple: Hudson and then Bergen County in New Jersey. And and when that happens. Uh, you know about it almost immediately because people have big mouths. So, you, you know, when when people tell me that the uh, national election last time was rigged, or that uh, a state uh, was uh, was rigged, I don't buy it because I've covered too many elections, and and I know how what a complicated uh, piece of workmanship. Stealing an election would have to be, and, and you know, frankly, neither political party has the, uh, the the brains or know how to pull it off. Um,
1: well, I think Dominion does. I think <laughs> knows how to pull it off, and I think they did it quite well. I don't think that's really come to light yet, but I, hopefully, it will in time uh, because those. It is pretty clear right now that those machines were all accessible. Uh, to to intervention during the course of the elections, they were accessible. Well, Whether they were or not, we don't know, but uh, that time will tell.
4: Yeah, my theory is that if anybody stole the election, it was Donald Trump. He stole his own election by um, you know he just blew it, and uh, you know he has nobody to blame but himself, and it's, and. Uh, someday he may look in the mirror and realize that mm. but the uh you know now having said that in pennsylvania we have a supreme court race the supreme court here which was dominated five to two by democrats actually broke the law during the last election allowing mail-in ballots to be counted after a uh, a legal deadline so they just changed the law and said you know we can do this because of covid so uh um We have a Republican uh, running against a uh, Democrat in the Supreme Court election. It will not change the balance of the court, uh, but I think it's an important bellwether for this state uh, as to the uh, results of that election. Um, Interesting. You know, the major newspapers in the state, including the uh, left-wing Philadelphia Inquirer, have endorsed the Republican. So uh, that's pretty amazing.
1: It is amazing, right? Here in Florida, uh, the uh, Supreme Court justices are appointed by the governor and approved by the legislature. And uh, our governor, the week after he was uh, elected, ended up appointing three three of the Supreme Court justices here in uh, Florida, which may change the complexion of the decisions coming from the Supreme Court dramatically. So uh, these types of elections can have real consequences, and uh, they certainly did here in Florida. I can tell you, positive consequences. What do you think is going to be, if, in fact, what uh, what is the impact of this election, this Virginia election, here on national politics, in your opinion?
4: Well, I think it's a uh, it'll be a forecast for the Democratic Party. I mean, I, the NBC poll that came out, uh, I think it was yesterday, that showed uh, Biden at the forty two percent approval rate. Yeah, was uh, like a like a bust you know, a damn buster uh, hitting the Democratic Party. Uh, it's you know, it's a wake up call that, that he is a disaster, and you know, Kamala Harris polls uh, worse than he does. You know, so uh, yeah. The Democrats have a real problem with the midterms coming up. Uh, this is why uh, I, I tell people hold off buying your electric car, because if the Republicans take Congress, you know that green regime is going to slow down. Uh, um, so you're going to have a lot more choices in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a guy, by the way, who 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 is uh, very attracted by the concept of these uh, plug-in hybrids. Yeah, uh, I, I had owned a hybrid in the past. But in order for those to pay off, gasoline would have to be six dollars a gallon. Um, I don't see that happening because uh, com- Congress won't ad- adopt a uh, carbon tax. So, you know, I say hold off buying that car until yeah. after the, the midterm elections. Because I must I say, Jim, I, I, are going to sweep.
1: I have a uh, Lexus hybrid. I love that car. It's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I like the fact that it's also gas propelled, as well as having the electric component. And that uh, it it recharges itself. So uh, I I think hybrid is the way to go, quite frankly. But we'll see. Time will tell. You know what? We're out of time. And I wanted to be able to talk to you about uh, the uh, kind of scandal that you're talking about with regard to the newspaper there in uh, your town there in Pennsylvania. A Lancaster, yeah,
4: hacked by the Russians. Yeah, we can do that next time.
1: Well, let's do it next time. Jim McTagg again, former Barron's Washington bureau chief and author of a couple of terrific murder mysteries. I enjoyed them so much, and I know you will too. Get a copy of Father the Leader" by Jim McTagg. "Follow the Leader" and its sequel, "Shake the Money Tree." Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey,
4: Bob, it's uh, one of my pleasures to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much, Jim. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadoma, our state senator. That's always informative. We'll visit with Boo Mortson, find out what's with, new with Boo. And she's down here on the Paradise Coast now. Seat Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. And Linda Harden, my wife, will be with us as well. She writes greetings from Paradise. Uh, always interested in her feedback and thoughts about what's happening in the world and locally here as well. Uh, well, i I'd appreciate getting your feedback. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.